Now, I have a wonderful message to tell us, and I hope by God's grace I'm strengthened through it. It seems that this morning I took my blood sugar and it was 86, which is very good, but uh, it seems like I'm failing a little. So if anyone has like a cracker or something, I'm sucking on something now, but you know, sugar rushes are not good. To, to have so like a little piece of bread or cracker and a little cup of water if you can you know steal something from one of your kids you like a piece of candy? no I have a candy I, the sugars get you two then I go woo <laughs> anyway let's hear from uh, Jonah chapter 4 I'm going to have two sermons on this uh, left of now and then next next time But let's hear from the uh, prophet Jonah, chapter 4, and I'll read the entire chapter. It's uh, only 11 verses. This, dear people, is the word of God, so let's hear it and hear it well. Beginning Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, great kindness, and repent thee of evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did rise that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the good? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. And said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the good, for the which thou hast not labored, neither made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? May God bless the reading of his sacred word to our hearts and minds. Once again, Lord Jesus, we are thankful to be here in your presence. We ask thee that you would give us a clear mind and a clear heart to understand the things which apparently 
Jonah would not. Indeed, he could, but he would not. May we learn a lesson from Jonah that we can do what you require and request of us, but sometimes we are unwilling. Be pleased to strengthen us and make us willing in the day of thy power. For this we ask in your name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin by saying that this prophet, this, uh, this Jonah, is a, a sulking prophet. Does that make sense to you? This is a, 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 a very sad, uh, unthankful, unjoyful, a prophet that let his self-pity, his, uh, his bad attitude get the better of him. And he wound up sulking, leaving the city, turning his back on God, as we see here in verses 4 and 5. The Lord says, It's well to be angry. And so Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side. That means something. And there made him a booth. That means something. And sat under it to foreshadow till he might see what became of the city. So, Apparently, Jonah is sulking because the Lord told him to preach and that he gave Nineveh 40 days to repent. And he goes to the city and he, Jonah knows that God's going to give him the grace to repent. And so he's just angry throughout, disappointed throughout, and he leaves the city and goes off on the, uh, to the east of it and sits there, makes himself a booth and sits there and waits. Now, we don't know how long he waited. If he waited the full 40 days to see if the whole city repented, maybe he thought in his sulking, solemn attitude that God would change his mind and that God would judge these people. But uh, we, don't, we don't know for sure. We don't know uh, where he went after he left. We, we don't know if he returned to Israel. We, the word of God says nothing about Jonah after this. So we don't know if he resumed his position in Israel, if he hung out in the desert till he died. What happened to Jonah? probably returned to Israel, but never was used as a prophet again. So I want to talk about uh, the the good a little bit. I want to talk about the lesson of the good to Jonah and also the lesson of the good to to us in general. It's pretty straightforward. But it is... uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. It was a challenge to Jonah. Jonah needed another lesson. God gave him a gourd because he needed a two-day lesson there. 
Did he learn from it? One hopes so. One might think so because he learned in the belly of the, of the, of the fish, being three days in the bottom of the sea, thinking he was, that was it for him, he learned repentance. So maybe after the lesson of the good, after the 40 days were gone, after he left the vicinity, whenever that was, it was probably before the 40 days, we don't know how much before it, but he may have learned. That's the, the hope, anyway. Doesn't mean he wasn't saved. Some of us just never, ever learn. We are as stubborn and as nasty and as angry as can be with whatever, and we just keep it. Doesn't mean we're not saved. But we're certainly not being blessed as we ought when we have a bad attitude. Now you say, well, I have a bad attitude towards the pastor, not towards God. I'll talk about that. Well, I have a bad attitude towards someone else, not towards God. We'll talk about that. That's no escape. You know that. So I want to talk about this good. Well, uh, many think, commentators, such, think that this good is the, the castor oil or castor bean plant that grows there. It's a, it's a vine with, with huge leaves called castor oil or castor bean. And uh, don't know. Don't know if it was that. Well, not. Why don't we know? Well, it was a miraculous thing because it grew up in the night. This, this vine grew, the leaves prospered, and it afforded much shade for the prophet who was suffering. But again, it doesn't matter. In fact, that we don't know what happened to Jonah doesn't matter. What happened to this plant, what kind of plant, maybe it was a, a, like the fish, a, 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 it appeared once and it was gone forever. But it doesn't matter. It's of no account. What matters here at this point, what we're reading, what matters is God. What matters is God's mercy. What matters is God's sovereign mercy in salvation. That's what matters. Not what came of Jonah after he left, went his way, not what happened to the plant, what kind of plant it was, or what kind of fish it was that swallowed Jonah earlier on. It's not about that. It's about God and his mercy and his sovereignty in salvation. If you're going to learn the lesson, keep that in mind. It's all about God, his mercy, his sovereignty, his salvation. Those three things. Uh, it says here, as we go down this chapter, in, uh, in verse 9, God said to Jonah, 
Doest thou well to be angry for the good? And he said, I do well, even to the point of death. And the Lord said, Thou hast had pity on the good for the which thou hast not labored, neither made it grow, which came up in a night, perished in a night. So it was there and gone. That's it. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? What is this? Six, a hundred and twenty thousand, six score thousand, right? It's a hundred and twenty thousand persons that cannot discern right from wrong, right, left. Who's he speaking about? Or about whom is he speaking? He's speaking about children. Right? Children don't know the difference. They don't know the difference between right and wrong, between their right hand and their left hand. They're children. See, not even I. It's just right. That's left. But children don't know that. There are 120,000 children. So, scholars and commentators surmise that there must have been about a million people populating Nineveh. It's a million people. God's reaching out to a million people. He's going to save not all the the million, maybe. Most of them, though. Most, if not all, of the 120,000 children. But Jonah seems to have forgotten something. Micah says it best in chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God. We ought to love the fact that God is merciful. We ought to love the fact that God extends his hand to others. And brings them, brings them in to save their soul eternally. But this prophet Jonah wants to see the destruction of the city. He wants to see the destruction of the people. That's why he goes to the east. Because the east is where the Lord comes. That's from which the glory of the Lord, the judgment of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord comes from the east. That's where they set up the tabernacle pointing to the east. That's where they set up the temple when that was built, towards the east. That's where Jonah went, towards the east. Maybe he was waiting to see if the judgment of God was going to come from the east upon this city. Don't know. Again, it's not the number, though. It's not the number of children, 120,000. It's not the number of residents, perhaps a million. It's not the character of the people. That's of the most importance. What is of the utmost importance is the mercy of God. That is what this is about. The mercy of God. The sovereign mercy of God. God's sovereignty in salvation. Which, of course, is the mercy of God, right? We're saved by the mercy of God. That's what it's about. 
fact that God saves anyone, any one of us, shows a great outstanding mercy that we do not have by nature. Jonah was so encapsulated by his hatred for Nineveh. Because Nineveh, they were the enemies of Israel. They did horrid things. They were wicked people. They were idolatrous people. He hated them. He hated them with a passion and would not be comforted. Would not be calmed down by God. No less a preacher or some other person trying to teach him something. Forget that. This is God speaking to him. And he wouldn't be calmed down. Stubborn. Angry. Tells us that the gourd grew up. God prepared uh, uh, this gourd to to grow up over Jonah that he might shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief so that Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. Chapter 4, verse 6, that Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. Can you imagine? It's the first time in this entire book where we hear that Jonah was happy. He was miserable throughout. He was running away from God at the beginning. He was down at the bottom. He found repentance close to death. He spat on the shore of Nineveh. He goes through the city preaching, repent or perish, essentially repent or perish. He had 40 days and the city's going to be destroyed. He was angry throughout that whole scene. Then he stomps out of the city, builds a booth in the east. That doesn't work so well for him. God creates a gourd over his head to shadow him, to shade him, to make him comfortable, show another mercy to Jonah. And he's still angry. But in this particular case, when the gourd came over and the shade from the gourd comforted him, he was made glad, exceeding glad, it says. Happy for a moment, right? Because no sooner does the gourd come and shade him and comfort him, a day later, its shade is gone, its comfort is gone, an east wind from the desert blows against him, the sun's beating down on him, the gourd has withered and died, and he is miserable again. He is so angry that he tells God, when God says, do you do well to be angry? He says, yes, I do well, even to the point of death. I want to die. Talk about a bad attitude. We are cautioned to you, brothers and sisters. He was bitter. He was angry. He was angry with God. And he is not unusual. Because you have to think of it this way, dear people. The writer of Hebrews warns us the same thing. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. Are you bitter towards anyone or anything? Are you bitter 
towards anyone or anything. You ought to learn from Jonah. It's going to eat you up. It's going to be like the worm that withered the good. It's going to be that worm that withers your soul. And just zaps your joy. Your happiness, your comfort, your delight. Oh, you'll have moments of it, yeah. You might see your, your favorite friend or favorite family member, or you'll do this or you'll do that, and they're a happy moment, but then when you're, you're, you're with yourself again, there's something just eating away at you. Something troubling you. It's always on your mind. It's never very far away. Something reminds you, and there it is again. Root of bitterness. Like a worm that eats at your soul and withers it. That's what's happened with John. And this is a saved person. We're talking about a saved person. When you and I complain against the circumstances of life, and especially the people of, of life, You complain and you gripe and you grumble against that. You're not grumbling against them alone or against the circumstances alone. You're grumbling and griping against God. For you and I both know that God is sovereign in all things, that God arranges all the circumstances of life that surrounds us, that God introduces the people into our lives that come and and then go. God brings all these things about for his own glory and your good, yet you are too blind and stubborn and nasty and arrogant and troubled to get it. You complain. You complain. Your complaint is against God. It's never against just, oh, the circumstance. Oh, this dumb, rotten car, or this stupid house, or this person, this neighbor that is, or this, this pastor. You're griping against God. And Jonah teaches us that. He was mad as a hornet at God. Because God was obviously involved in every step of the way in Jonah's journey. Well, what do you think about you, yourself, your life? God is involved in every step of the way in your journey in life, as they, these evangelicals like to call journey, you know, whatever you want to call it. You're, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. He helps you to pray. He burdens you with prayer requests and burdens that are on your heart. He is with you. He is the way you get to know the Father and get to know the Son. Because the Son is the perfect image of the Father. And the Spirit is the perfect image of the Son, Jesus Christ. Know the Spirit, you know Christ. And you know the Father. And He's always with you. What are you doing grumbling and griping? Complaining 
about anyone or anything. Complaining against God. Doesn't mean we can't take a complaint, have a complaint. Of course we can have a complaint, but bring it to God. Bring it before God, talk to Him. Like Habakkuk did. Jonah was bringing it against God, wasn't he? And God was dealing with his prophet gently all the way. He even created the gourd to shade him. And then he took it away. Why did he do that? To teach Jonah a lesson. The lesson of the gourd is that God, of course, is sovereign. God is merciful, right? The God provided shade for the prophet. But then he took that shade away. God did it. Teaching Jonah. Can you do anything for the God? Did you create the God? I did. What I create, I can take away. What I give, I can take back. Likewise, who I save and who I do not is my doing, not yours. He uses weak and fallible people like this prophet Jonah to accomplish his will. But it's God that saves. It's God that shows mercy. And so just like Jonah complaining against the good that he didn't, he didn't plant it, he didn't nurture it, he didn't do anything. God brought it up. God can take it back. It's God that shows mercy. And when he doesn't show mercy, it's God that does that. It's his choice. And see, this is a great lesson for us who understand somewhat God's sovereignty and salvation. God saves whom he wills. Christ went to the cross and died for a people. He accomplished salvation for a people that God gave him before the foundation of the world. And nothing can stop that. Well, you say, or I say, Jonah here says, well, why save the Ninevites? Because I have delighted to do so. I am reaching beyond the borders of Israel to teach you that the Gentiles are going to be coming into the church. Jonah is a sign of the coming of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Jonah is a sign of that. He's a sign that God's mercy is undeserved and his mercy extends to a people that are not a people but will become the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of course of their sin and it's not according to your will or my will or your ability or my ability or your likes or dislikes it's according to the mercy the sovereign mercy of God that anyone is saved. And we should be able to delight in 
whomever is saved by his grace and delight in the fact that he uses you or uses me in some small measure, perhaps large measure, to bring another home to Jesus Christ or through through faith in Jesus Christ. Jonah was angry. Imagine that. Imagine being angry at that neighbor across the way Gives us a hard time all the time. Don't even want to talk to him. Bothers and troubles uh, me. This other neighbor here, I'm not, <coughs> I'm just giving an example. <coughs> this other neighbor troubles my wife, and I despise him. This one across the street yells at my kids. When they were young, and yelled at my, I don't want to have anything to do. And God saves them, brings them into the church, brings them into my house, so to speak. And what's my attitude? One of joy? One of suspicion? One of trouble? Can you see what Jonah did? 120,000 children, not to mention all the other hundreds of thousands of people God chooses to save, and he is miserable over it. Because why? Because God didn't do it the way he wanted it done. My will is not your will. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, saith the Lord. Learn of me. Learn from me, not yourself, not your whims, not your neighbors, not your family, not your friends, not whomever. Learn from me how this works. I choose whom I will. I harden whom I will. Does that meet with your approval? It didn't meet with the prophet's approval, did it? He uh, took umbrage with God over this. So when I have uh, prayed for certain people that I want saved, certain people that I want well, certain people that I want healed, certain people that I want helped, and God doesn't do that. Who am I to reply against God? See, this is what happens to us. We don't get our way. God doesn't answer the way our prayer the way we expect him to, and it troubles us so. You may not always talk about it. But it's there. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. Are you happy? Better. Are you profoundly happy, joyful every day? Was there something that troubles you? What is it? Oh, you say my physical illness troubles me. Eh, 
It can. I mean, when the pain is so severe, yeah, I want to minimize that. But is that really your problem? Think about it. What, what, what's keeping you from being joyful and excited and a, an approachable type of person so that anyone at any time can come up to you and you have a smile for them? You have a kind word. You, you, you have open arms. What's keeping you from doing that? To as a brother or sister in Christ. Let's put aside others outside the church for a minute inside the church. What's making you suspicious of that person? What's making you distrustful? I think we should examine ourselves and and say, well, maybe it's my attitude. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm holding on to something I ought not to be holding on to. Maybe I'm not agreeing with God's plan and purpose. I think oftentimes that's why you and I have a bad attitude towards someone or something. It's because I'm out of alignment. I'm out of I'm, I'm not agreeing with God's plan and purpose. And it's annoying me. It's troubling me. It's zapping my 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 joy. Remember God is sovereign in all things, but especially I disagree with our evangelical brethren, our Baptist friends and family members who will agree with us that God is sovereign in everything except salvation, that it's up to fickle, a man's fickle will and willpower and decision-making? God can't do anything about that until you, oh man, are willing to change? No. God is sovereign in everything, especially, especially in salvation. God saves whom he wills. And he hardens and distances himself from whom he wills. And sometimes we don't like that. Also, one other thing. He's sovereign in the way he brings salvation before us, brings up our sanctification to us. 
He chooses, what does the apostle say? I want to read this uh, scripture for you. Not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of the world, the things which are despised, has God chosen, yea, and the things that are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's not me, though. It isn't. Foolish, weak, base, despised. That is exactly your calling. That's our calling. That's what God has chosen. God hasn't chosen the uh, the concerts and the concerts that the the fame and the and the fortune and the the five hundred, so to speak. God hasn't chosen the amazing things, the the the, the people with extraordinary gifts and talents and abilities far beyond those of mortal men, so to speak. The supermen and superwomen of the culture and of the society, the presidents and prime ministers, kings and queens of the earth. God has chosen the base, the foolish, the nothings. To bring about his plan of salvation. Again, God has chosen the foolishness of preaching, dear people. But I don't think church is necessary. I don't really think it's that important. I'm saved outside of church. No. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching and to add insult to injury. People, think about this. Listen up, please. He's chosen not only the foolishness of preaching, but foolish people, foolish preachers to advance his salvation. His thoughts, his ways, they're not ours. Because we would never have done it that way. But you know and I know that God is exactly doing it that way. Not only the foolishness of preaching, but the foolish preachers. Weak, frail, nothings to advance his cause, to advance his salvation. Because God, the lesson, God is sovereign. He brings up the good, he takes it away. He brings up salvation. To some, and he holds it back from others. It's all according to his will and his way, and not our will and not our way. Therefore, brothers and sisters, the lesson is this. God is merciful because he doesn't need to save a single person. No less, a million, two million, and over the course of time, many millions. Maybe even into billions now. He is sovereign. He's in control of everything, right? All things, and especially the salvation of souls. God is sovereign. He's merciful. And it's always, all of our prayers should be prefaced with, if we don't say it in word, we certainly should have that attitude. It's always not my will, but thy will be done. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you.
uh, for your word. Thank you for your ways, Lord. We know that uh, salvation belongs to you, as the psalmist says. It belongs to our God, and we are thankful for it. And we pray against any root of bitterness that may spring up within us. Cast it away. Uproot it and cast it far from us, Lord. We are a happy people, a joyful people, a delightful people, knowing that it's God's will. It's God's way. And thou art pleased to use us to further your influence, to advance your cause in our lives and in the lives of others. And we pray, Heavenly Father, for a humble, cheerful, thankful heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's, in closing, sing a